Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Think of a tournament and you're likely to think of chivalrous knights, splintered lances, and admiring damsels with the odd handkerchief drops. The polite ritual displays of arms at a joust. But before the joust came to the fore, there was the melee tournament. A brutal free-for-all with sharpened weapons, few rules, and one undisputed champion, William Marshall, the best knight in all the world. His story reveals a very different kind of tournament. One in which brute force ruled, handkerchiefs stayed in pockets, and money was more important than manners. It was hugely violent. People got hurt, seriously hurt. Break their arm or crack their ribs or something, but just make sure they can still reach for their wallets. In this program, I'm going on a journey into the knightly world of William Marshall. I'll be training like him, trying out his weapons, and testing his armor. And I'll be following the clues of his story from Temple Church in London, to the museums of Manhattan, and the battlefields of northern France. It's an epic tale of the greatest tournament knight of his era. A man who dominates Europe's first international sporting arena, takes the reins of power, and then saves a kingdom on the battlefield. Seven nights a week, audiences gather at medieval times in New Jersey to feast on a mock medieval banquet and cheer on their favorite nights in a jousting extravaganza.
This is what most people think of as a tournament. It's a scene we know well from movies and shows. Two knights on horseback, charging at each other with lances, and all for the love of a fair maiden. But I want to explore the tournament era before all the pageantry and courtly shenanigans seeped in. As I look for information on the early tournament, the one name that keeps cropping up is William Marshall. And I have a hunch that this tournament champion is the key to unlocking the events that preceded the joust. So I've come to Temple Church in the city of London, built in the 12th century by the Knights Templar. I'm here because it contains the life-size effigies of nine medieval knights. One of them is of William Marshall. And, and here we have the effigies of our own knights. Which one do we think is William Marshall? Since the 1840s, this is the character who has been identified as William Marshall, the first Earl of Pembroke, surrounded by three of his sons, or so it seems at least. We can't actually be sure? I'm afraid not. You can't <laughs> bet on it. Uh, the knights have been laid out like this with our present identification since the 1840s, when a very great archaeologist more or less saved them from hopeless destruction. But he knew that William Marshall I was here, and he knew at least one of his sons was here, and he played pretty fast and loose with the evidence to get <laughs> the identifications he needed. That does strike me, this one in particular, he looks like a knight ready for action, doesn't he? He's got all his martial kit, his yep. shield, his yes. sword, his coif, he's fully armoured. He's also quite tall. I mean, we know that this man, William Marshall, was a great champion. It, there's a good chance, isn't there, that this is him? Yes, and it was rather striking. When the bones were dug up from underneath the round in the 1840s, it was discovered that at least one of the men buried here would have stood in his lifetime, over six foot tall. Uh -huh. I mean, in 1220, this is a giant. It's quite unusual. And you put the man onto a war horse, and you put them both into armor from head to foot, you have a one-man tank. William Marshall was born around 1147. Precisely when or where isn't clear, because his family wasn't prominent enough for the details to be recorded. But despite his relatively humble beginnings, he rose to be Regent of England, one of the most powerful men of his generation. We may not know for certain which of these men is William Marshall, but we do know a lot about his life thanks to an extraordinary document that survived from the 13th century. It contains many details about Marshall's career and some tantalizing clues about the tournaments in which he made his name. I'm on my way to see William Marshall's biography it's a document that's almost 800 years old. And after being bought and sold a number of times, it's now in the archives of the Morgan Library and Museum, here in New York City. Many a saddle was turned, and many a knight knocked to the ground. Many were injured, many were beaten, many captured. Many made to swear a pledge. Many gave him a wide berth, yet many a blow struck with sword and mace were directed at William Marshall, squashing his helmet completely and reaching through to his very scalp. They boldly hacked at each other, 
just as a carpenter chops and carves wood with his axe, so they struck one another. Hello, Bill. Oh, hello, Saul. Good to see you. And you. So this is the amazing William Marshall biography. Yes, uh, here it is, all 127 leaves of it. Uh, and as you can see, it's written in two columns. It's an Anglo-Norman rhymed verses. There are almost 20,000 of them. Is it unusual for a knight of this period to have a biography written of him? Oh, yes, I would say so. Uh, while there are, of course, extensive biographies of mythical knights like Lancelot, Tristan, and so forth, uh, we have almost no biographies of, of real knights. And what sort of details has it got in it that uh, give us an insight into who William Marshall was? We have a physical description of the man who was over six feet tall, had brown hair, and his physique was described as being a work of sculpture, that he mm. was well made for his, for his purpose as, as a knight. His hair was brown, his face swarthy, but his features were so much like those of a true noble that he could have been emperor of Rome. It's a genuine biography, and it's the only one that actually survives in the Middle Ages. It's perfectly possible it was the only one ever written in the Middle Ages, as we would recognize it, a classic biography. This manuscript is just packed full of interesting information on the tournament in the 12th century. And it also contains some fascinating details about the Marshal's life story. We read, for example, how his father sent him to be schooled at the Tankerville household in Normandy. Now, you would have thought that the man who became known as the greatest knight in the world would have been the keenest squire on the training ground. But actually, it's clear he's a bit of a lazy blighter. And when he wasn't sleeping, he was stuffing his face. And we know this because the life records his nickname as Gast Viand, Greedy Guts. We know he was taught to sing, um, and he did it rather well, too. Um, but a nice voice, according to his biographer. Uh, and he certainly enjoyed music, we know that much. Probably he had some instruction in the skills of the hunt. The one thing that he didn't have, which is actually most unusual in his day, was a literate education. He wasn't taught his letters. The only way he could actually make a living for himself was as a soldier. And we can be sure our would-be knight received a top-notch military education. His lord was considered one of the grandest patrons of knighthood, with a retinue of well over a hundred men. And I'm on my way to try out some of the training methods used by knights of the Tankerville retinue, including the young William Marshall. joined up with some highly skilled tournament performers. I'm feeling a little nervous though. I haven't ridden for years and I've never handled any medieval weapons. But I'm hoping to get a few tips from my tutor in arms, Alan Larson. Hi Alan. Hi sir. So as you can see I'm all kitted out, but what exactly is the lance you're holding? This is a war lance. Yeah. This was the primary weapon of an 11th and 12th century knight. He'd work so that he could use this lance effectively, deepen the saddle, lower it down, and put all of the impact, half a ton of horse and rider, traveling at 25, 30 miles an hour, right behind it. And the mass of knights riding knee to knee was the new shock tactic of the 12th century. It really was cutting edge technology, very effective. 
Okay, so you've got the real McCoy. What's this toothpick I'm holding? Right. This, this is what we're going to use for your training against the Quintain. Now, this lance, as you know, is more typical of the 11th century. But because the Quintain is a tricky beast, as you'll find, it's that spinning device. You really want to be starting off at this stage of your training with something a little bit more manoeuvrable. You'd, you'd work up in due course to this. Okay, so we'll uh, go and give this a shot then, shall we? Let's go. Keep it in, look like the business, and you want to establish this this fulcrum here, yeah? To, to, to keep sort of wedged. To keep wedged yeah. in, yeah? Remember, sitting back, heels down, thinking and riding like a lord. Let's keep that ghastly grin on your face. Gentle pressure on the reins, lean back and use your voice, yeah? Push them on. Nice. Come back on the same line. Just as long as you get that, that length out in front of the horse. Okay. Yeah, it felt good. It felt good. I mean, uh, you've got to think of five different things at the same time. Controlling the horse, leaning back, heels down, and then the, uh, you know, the accuracy of the lance. I suppose, Alan, it's pretty obvious it's going to take a while to master the, these sort of techniques, which is why it probably took William Marshall, what, seven years to become a fully trained up knight? Yeah. Most days, he and his fellow squires would have been out there practicing. He would have been up on horseback, practicing, 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 so that he could hit not only that shield, but pretty much anywhere on it. Pinpoint accuracy, so that when it came to war, he could find that chink in his opponent's armour and drive that lance right through. If William Marshall wasn't training with his lance, it's likely he was practising with his longsword. Whether he actually swiped at cabbages, his biography doesn't tell us. But it's not hard to imagine the young squire slicing through vegetables in the bailey of his lord's Normandy castle. The other key weapon in the marshal's arsenal was designed for blunt destruction. The mace. As William approached the end of his seven years of training, word reached him that his father had died and, worse still, had left him nothing in his will. So when the young marshal was knighted soon afterwards, he knew he would have to make his own way in the world. And one of the ways to do that was to, to use his skills so he could draw attention to himself as a young knight by fighting well and displaying his talents, which he would do at the court of, of William of Tankerville, both fighting in skirmishes but more importantly in tournaments.
And in the late 12th century, it was the Picardy region of northern France that played host to knights looking to showcase their talent on the tournament field. I'm on my way to a location just north of Paris, which was one of the most popular sites for tournaments during William Marshall's lifetime, and one where he often fought himself. I'm still not sure I really know what these early tournaments were all about. But fortunately, I'm meeting with an expert who can tell me what used to take place here 800 years ago. Hello, David. Hi, Saul. So here we are in tournament country in northern France, but where exactly are we? Well, we're in Picardy, and we're between two towns, halfway between two towns. That's raison sur mat to our north, and to our south, the town of gounay sur aronde And this was the place where you came to be seen if you were a knight in the 12th century. This is where you would come to establish your reputation. You would come from a long way. People came from Spain, uh, people came from Germany, people came from England, people ke even came from Scotland to here, because this was the place to showcase your talent. This was the Stade de France of the, of the Middle Ages. Now, we're talking about the area all around us because this is a huge area. This is a huge area. We need a map to show you exactly how large and how it was used. This overlay here will show you exactly what sort of area we're talking about. Amazingly, the area that was set out for the tournament here was about nine square kilometers. That's the size of 20 full-size golf courses. So we're not talking about a small-scale joust event, then? No, this is an entirely different order of uh, event. I mean, a joust is a one-on-one -on -one event between two knights. Um, but this is more of a mock battle involving hundreds, thousands of knights. They would assemble and draw up opposite each other in two great long lines, hundreds of knights on either side. It must have been tremendously exciting. Your insides must have been turning to liquid, though. I mean, it would be unbelievably frightening. And the last moment, that great helm is put over your head. And through it, you can just see your noble opponents at the other end of the field. Once the green light went on and everybody was off, the whole thing is completely out of your control. And you're just swept along with the tide of the event. It must have been really exhilarating to be part of so many nights charging against a war of other nights. Both sides would come together and there'd be a huge clash right in the middle of the field. The people who are off are going to try and protect themselves from the horses' hooves and the dust and the noise would be unbelievable. Screaming horses, screaming men, people yelling orders, trying to get their formations back together. It'd be total chaos. They would turn, this is what gave the tournament its name, and then they would melee, which means that they would fight, and they would fight as if they were in an actual battle.
this is where you get out your swords and your maces and you hammer down blows on the helmets of your opponents. Now you can hear the sound of sword blade on sword blade. The grunts and groans of, of effort and exertion. Sooner or later, uh, the whole melee would break up as some knights broke away. Some were pursued, some were turning to find advantage, and eventually they would spread out over this entire landscape. And they would use the landscape too, because this was a mock battle and it was used like a battlefield. And they would use the ditches, they would use the hedges, they would use the small woods to take cover, uh, to take refuge as a rest place, as somewhere to actually sit and just bandage up their wounds. And also they would use it as a place for ambushing other knights who came unsuspecting past them. And it might go on until sunset, or it might go on until they're tired, or it might go on until one side had just lost heart and ran for it, back to their base. But what could have motivated these knights to trek to a field in northern France? and risk their lives in such a lethal activity. By the late 12th century, the knight had already begun to develop his role as a lord, as a social figure, as a figure with political um, power. But primarily, they were warriors. They were the warrior elite. What made them special was the fact that they fought on horseback. That is what defined the medieval knight and set him apart from every other form of fighting man. Anyone who wanted to be a professional soldier had to train and the best way of training to be a knight was to fight in tournaments. That was the whole reason they were invented was as training for war. You need to know what it's like to face people who desperately want to kill you. It was said that you weren't truly a knight until you'd felt your teeth crack and your blood flow. And both of those things are going to happen in a tournament. While the warrior elite reveled in their martial training, their violent behavior was far from popular with medieval society's other elite. Well, the church always had a very negative attitude towards tournaments. Um, they objected on many grounds. They objected on moral and spiritual grounds. They thought that tournaments were breeding places for all the vices. You get examples of abbeys where knights have, have been put up for the night, ready to go out to fight the tournament, and they all get drunk and rampage through the place and destroy it. And sometimes townsmen objected for that same reason. They would shut the doors. You've got large groups of armed men wandering around the countryside. They can seize what they want. They don't necessarily pay for it because they've got arms and who's going to argue against them? The church always said, right from 1130, that anybody who took part in a tournament should be excommunicated, which meant they were literally cut off from all the sacraments of the church. They couldn't go in, they couldn't confess. They were not allowed to have church burial if they were killed in the tournament. In practice, the church could do very little to prevent the knights from indulging in their violent hobby. 
but the knights were not totally without religious scruple. They avoided holding their mock battles on Fridays and Sundays, the days of meditation and worship, and they put away their lances for the whole of Lent, which is why Shrove Tuesday was the most popular day for a melee. And another type of melee also took place on Shrove Tuesdays across 12th century England. Mass football games were held throughout the country, a tradition that is still alive today here at Ashbourne in Derbyshire. Almighty and everlasting God, who hatest nothing that thou hast made, and dost forgive the sins of all them that are penitent. tournament was an extremely violent exercise and even the most skilled martial artists would get banged up. Broken arms and broken shoulder blades. There's probably never been a medieval knight who hasn't had some of his fingers broken and some of his teeth knocked out. People got hurt, seriously hurt. There are plenty of examples of uh, famous noblemen, even from England, who were hit on the head in the tournament and, and literally lost their senses or lost their sight. They were blinded in the, in the midst of the melee. And people were killed too. People tended to commemorate a tournament as, oh, that was the tournament in which such and such a man was killed, which tells you that actually it wasn't that common. But you could get killed, and there are plenty of high-profile people who were killed. But how anyone survived this brutal activity remains a mystery to me. Especially if, like William Marshall, they were at it for 20 years. Tournaments were intended as training for war. So killing people can't be the primary objective. It has to have an element of danger for it to be useful as training for war. But there are other considerations in a tournament. Ransom is first and foremost of those. It turns out that the aim of a tournament is not to kill your opponent, but to capture him and take a ransom. And you can't get a ransom from a dead man. This prize usually took the form of his weapons, his armor, his tack, and, of course, the valuable possession of his highly trained horse. The objective was to try and capture another knight, so one or more people would set upon a knight that they thought looked a good wealthy one, and they would capture him by dragging hold of his reins and pulling him out of the fighting and away from his own men. They would take him to one of the refuges and force him to give some sort of oath that he would pay a ransom. You could be very physical and brutal as well. You could reach out, grab his chainmail hood and wrench him off the horse over the back and onto the ground, then jump on him and get him to say the magic word. And the magic word was fiance. Fiance. I offer you a pledge. You know, disable them, break their arm or crack their ribs or something. But just make sure they can still reach for their wallets. 
William Marshall's great thing was that he would go up and grab the reins of a knight and drag him out of the melee and force him to surrender. A dazzling feat of horsemanship, you know, riding past another knight, grabbing the reins out of his hand and then just dragging him off the field, handing him over to his squires. Everybody applauded that. So if you were a poor, landless knight like William Marshall, if you were really good at the tournament, you could make your fortune doing that because you not only acquired better equipment for yourself, but you could sell on all your games and, and earn yourself a, a nice little fortune while you were at it. William's first tournament was a great success. He captured three knights, one an important courtier of the King of Scotland. These ransoms gave him a measure of independence, and William Tankerville led him head straight off to another tourney. Again, he distinguished himself, and he soon embarked on a lengthy tour of the tournament circuit. The marshal was well on his way, and the melee was his means. But ransoms weren't the only protection for knights during these violent tournaments just as important was their armour. Let's just pause there, shall we? And rewind that. Just in case you miss me risking life and limb. And yes, that really is me in there. That was terrifying. But no harm done, thanks to this plate armour, which is designed to deflect all blows against it. But when William Marshall was tourneying in the late 12th century, plate armour was still in the future. What he was using was very similar to the armour worn by William the Conqueror at Hastings in 1066. But what I can't understand is how anyone using such minimal protection could have been attacked with swords and lances and lived to tell the tale. This is the kind of armor that you would expect to see on the battlefield and on the tournament ground in the 12th century. It's mostly male, supplemented by solid steel helmets and cloth armor, padded cloth armor, very important for this period. Now, if anything, it looks a little bit more flexible and lighter than some of the armor I can see around the walls, but probably the best way to get a sense of what it feels like is actually to put it on. Yes, armor is a physical subject, and to really understand it, uh, you need to get inside. So, uh, let's put you in it. Okay, I'll give it a go. Throughout the whole of that night, the knights had their halberds polished, their leg armor rubbed, and made ready their arms. The others tried out their helmets to see that they were comfortable for the occasion. Some said, bring me my shield. I want the neck strap to be sturdy, and I also want the arm thong to be made to fit my size, as it should. After that, you would have seen men on all sides, putting on their coifs and ventails, and adjusting them to fit their links of mail. Excellent. So, Saul, how do you feel? Well, the first sensation is of 
the sheer weight of it all. I mean, you begin to wonder when you first put it on. When I put the legging on, I thought, if that's the weight on one leg, what's it going to feel like the whole thing on? So the weight, but not too heavy for you not to be able to move. And of course, it restricts you a bit under the arms, um, but actually I can move my arms, I could fight, I could get on a horse. So I'm beginning to see how this stuff actually works. Well, the first thing that we've got to be aware of is that the male, the metal bit, is not the most important part of the armor. We tend to focus on it because uh -huh. that's, the, that's the interesting bit. Mm -hmm. But the, the, the foundation of the armor is the padded undergarment the padded gambeson. Mm -hmm. That's your real armor. That's what cushions the shock of blows. That's what really protects you. The male is there simply as an augmentation. It's an extra defense if you can afford it. And what it does is it protects the soft armor from laceration and from the points of arrows and that kind of thing, which the soft armor can't protect you. Uh, now to get through all of that, this is good protection against swords. To get through that, you have other weapons appearing uh, around this time, like the mace. Now this kind of mace um, was a fairly recent development in William Marshall's time. But it's, it's focusing the, the force of an attack on a very small area. And the idea is to break your bones through all of the various soft and, and, and hard armor. Mm -hmm. It's not designed actually to get through the mail itself. It'll just, the blow will... Yes, will this will just crush you, you inside the mail. Now, of course, the final piece of protection is the helmet. And this, of course, is complete insurance, isn't it? You've got the uh, protection from the blows from the top, from the front, and also from the back. Anyone right. sneaky enough to come around the back. Absolutely. So, uh, can I try this on? Please. <laughs> Fits very well. I can actually see quite well either side. Heavy, of course, but the real key is it probably will protect very well from blows on the top. William Marshall uh, may have been one of the first people to wear one of these all-enclosing bucket helmets. Um, we know this because of the famous incident at the Tournament of Pleurs uh, in 1179. He'd won the prize and everybody was looking for him everywhere and they heard blows coming from the blacksmith's forge. They went there and they found William Marshall lying with his head on the anvil and the blacksmith was literally trying to beat the helm back into shape so that he could take it off. Well, I've learned a lot about the type of armour that William Marshall would have worn during the melee, but it begs the question, if everyone was wearing one of these, how could they tell friend from foe? It's a mystery that I'm hoping a modern-day herald can clear up for me. What they hit on was to take um, the newly developing form of heraldry of devices on shields. As you can see, very colourful things with the combinations of geometric shapes and uh, animals and beasts and birds of all kinds in rather stylized form and to use that not only on the shield but on a surcoat, um, the coat that would go over armour, and in this different way a knight and his uh, followers would be easily recognisable. You wear badges of your company so that you can tell that you're not fighting against your own people. But the other thing is that it enables you on the battlefield, the tournament field, to identify who is going to be the most valuable person to capture. So you can say, ah, oh, I can see that's the count of so-and-so. He will be worth so many great thousands of numbers of shillings or pounds. I will, all, I will take my company and grab him.
And in the 1170s and 80s, it was the colors of the young King Henry of England that every knight seeking a large ransom was focused upon. So the king hired the very best men to protect himself. The young king was the new heir to the throne and he held a very lavish court and he was besotted with tournaments and William was specifically appointed to look after him in the tournament and to teach him how to do it. The young king was always running out of money because he was so lavish and in his patronage. And we know that in the greatest tournament of the 12th century, the tournament of Nong Yi Sun Nan in 1179 in November, he took on the field with him 500 knights, which cost him 200 pounds a day. £200 was the revenue for the county of Worcester uh, in England for a year. And he was spending that every day that that enormous retinue was in the field. And the funding of those great tournament teams in the 12th century was not unlike the funding of a very, very great football team today. And Abramovich, the young king, both people with gigantic resources. The only difference is, is that the young king could actually fight himself, whereas I've yet to see Abramovich actually play for Chelsea. <laughs> It's hard to make an exact modern sporting parallel with the tournament, but for sheer physicality, it has to be closest to professional rugby. And like sport today, the Marshalls' tournament exploits were watched by passionate fans. Among them, knights, squires and their ladies and also a group known as Lara Sky, the riffraff. The um, common people, as it were, were spectating held behind barriers, and they got so excited that they pull up the barriers and literally wade in to join in the action. So it's just like a Millwall football match, you know. And you get people called um, palures de armes, which means uh, armchair warriors. Perhaps knights who were just superannuated who came to talk about the current champions of the day and who was best, and to bore people senseless with their recollections of previous tournaments. And there were even team chants. The most famous was that of the English king, Dex Ai, God I help. But unlike today's regulated sports, there were few rules in the tournament and little chivalrous behaviour as we would understand it. There's nothing at all fair about the way that William Marshall and his contemporaries fought tournaments. They would all gang up on a particular night who they thought was vulnerable. Information would be passed from one team to the other as to who were the inexperienced young knights who were easy to pick off and had lots of money and would be wonderful juicy prizes. One of the uh, great tactics of the tournament field, which William Marshall was adept at doing, was to hold back his company, wait until all the rest of them had fought for several hours and were absolutely exhausted. And then he would charge in with his men who were all fresh and ready to fight, and they would capture everybody because nobody could put up any resistance. But the Marshal's opportunism was to get him into trouble. He devised his own chant. Dex i.e. Marischal, God for the Marshal, a rip-off of the royal chant. And from 1179, he wore his own colours, featuring a red lion rampant 
associated with the kings of England. He and the king soon fell out. When William Marshall had a falling out with the young king and didn't know what to do with himself, lots of other great leaders and patrons of the tournament came rushing up with great offers to him, saying, come and fight for me. He took a fee, a very substantial fee, quarter of the rents of the city of Saint-Omer uh, from the Count of Flanders as his transfer fee into the Count of Flanders' team. It's almost impossible to put a modern figure on that, but it's a lot. You're talking millions. You're talking about a deal that even David Beckham would widen his eyes at. But lances for hire, like William Marshall, could get more from the tournament than just money. There was also the prospect of political power. The tournament was a hugely important social networking opportunity because it brought together barons and knights and all the wealthy and prestigious people from a very wide area, right across northern France and from England too, and all coming together to socialise. And William Marshall's social acumen off the tournament field was as effective as his military prowess on it. He was much more than just brawn. He was also a great brain. He was very skilled and acute and a good politician. He knew how to work his way around the camps at night and go and talk to the right people um, to make alliances with people and, and to build up connections that would serve him in the future. And his connections did serve him well. After Henry, the young king, died in 1183, William Marshall moved to the courts of Richard the Lionheart and then to that of his brother, King John. And when John died in 1216, he was made regent of England, protector to the nine-year-old King Henry III. William Marshall was now 70 years old and he was about to face the toughest challenge of his career. French knights under Prince Louis invaded England and joined forces with disaffected English barons. It looked highly likely that within a few months, um, Henry would be sort of either killed or consigned to a monastery. The whole of his dynasty would be swept away. Louis would become king of England, and England and France would come under the same dynasty. The whole political shape of Europe would be different. The fate of the country depended on William Marshall defeating the rebellious army. Part of that rebel force came here to Lincoln. They took the town and then besieged this castle. William Marshall's response was to gather a force to the north of the town on a flat plain suitable for battle. At first the rebels went out to fight him, but they soon changed their minds and ducked back inside the city walls to await reinforcements. I joined up with David Carpenter to hear how the tournament champion fared in his battle to save a kingdom. So, David, how did the marshal get into the town? Well, it was all thanks to the Bishop of Winchester, an extraordinary armour-plated prelate, master in warfare. And he went on this daring personal reconnaissance and discovered extraordinary, this undefended entrance. So he goes back to the marshal and said, right, there's your chance, you can get in that way. And the marshal's at 70, but he's so keen to get in, he just charges in and forgets to put on his helmet. So his squire pulls him back, saying, you must put your helmet on, lace it up for heaven's sake. And then in he goes again, the Bishop of Winchester charging behind says, God help the marshal, and they charge on into the town. 
The marshal charges into the town, knights opponents on either side. He deals a great blow onto the shoulders of Robert of Ropsley. And then it's here, right in front of the cathedral, that the really decisive confrontation takes place. Because the Count of Perch, the commander of the French forces, makes his last stand. And he's fighting with the marshal and with a knight called Reginald Croc. And then all of a sudden, Reginald, the Count's wearing on these great helms with this little eyepiece jabs his sword through the eyepiece of the Count's helm and no one quite saw what happened. For a second, the Count was okay. He brought three crashing blows of his sword down on William Marshall's helmet, so lucky he'd put it on, and then he suddenly crashed from his horse. The Marshal just said, take his helmet off, he's probably just fainted, give him a bit of, bit of air, smelling salt, something like that. And then they saw the ghastly wound. And, and he was dead. And, and that was the decisive moment of the battle. After that, the French, their English supporters retreat down the hill. The battle's won. David, it sounds like a lot of people were killed during this battle. Well, yes and no. Yes, if you're, like you and me, ordinary soldiers. But everyone was terribly sad about the death of the Count of Perch. And actually, very, very few members of the high nobility were killed in the battle. And I suppose that's a profound way in which the battle was very much like a tournament. It was like that for this reason, that the great aim in the battle was not to kill your noble opponent at all. It was to take him captive. And why? Because then you could get the ransom. And one of the best jokes about William Marshall's helmet is this. Why did he forget it? It was because he was so eager to get into the battle, says all the best ransoms hadn't gone before he got there. So, you know, in an extraordinary way, Lincoln, a battle which decides the whole future political structure of Europe, is really just like a tournament. Lincoln was William Marshall's last set piece. Fortunately for England, the man who had won so many prizes on the tournament field won again on the battlefield. Louis was soon on his way back to France and the English throne had been saved. It was a fitting end to the final chapter of the Marshall's extraordinary career. Two years after the Battle of Lincoln, William Marshall lay dying, surrounded by his family and his entourage. The deathbed scene in the Marshall biography is one of the most poignant in literature. As he lay dying, surrounded by family and retainers, he recalled with mingled regret and pride that he had taken prisoner as many as 500 knights, along with their arms, horses and equipment. But when someone suggested that he return all this booty, he chided them. A tournament night to the end. And finally, the man who had defended himself against the blows of countless enemies said, I am dying. I cannot defend myself from death. With William Marshall's death, the great era of the melee also passed. Writing soon after his demise, William's biographer lamented that the tournament had changed so dramatically. The huge melee tournament, which took place here in the 12th and early 13th centuries, began to lose its popularity with the emergence of the small-scale joust. The joust was more practical. There were fewer fatalities, less damage to property, 
And above all, the great deeds of the knights could now be more easily admired by their audience. And in the most unlikely places. So, Julia, why have you brought us here? Well, we're looking over one of the great medieval streets of London. This is Cheapside, hugely important jousting scene for tournaments that were held in the Middle Ages, particularly in the 14th century. We're standing on the balcony of the church of St Mary Le Beau, which was rebuilt by Wren after the Great Fire of London. But apparently, according to legend, he built this balcony here because this was where they had all the stands where the ladies used to come to watch the jousts that were taking place in the street below. They'd cover the street with sand, so that uh, the horses' hooves didn't slip, and then they'd have to damp it all down because obviously if it got dry and dusty, then the crowds would actually be covered in dust and be choking. And when two knights actually joust against each other, they often miss. So what they did was try and jazz it all up and make it more exciting. So literally, knights bring in tents that are painted to look like castles and the knights can emerge and rescue the damsels who are stuck in another set of towers or whatever. Or they would even dress up as women, they would have the monks versus nuns and there's even one sort of my favourite one where they dress up as the seven deadly sins and you can just imagine what fun they would have doing that and how it would be instantly recognisable to the spectators. It was meant to be fun for everybody involved. That theatrical pageant which replaced the melee is one that has continued to entertain us down the ages. In many ways, we're still putting on the same show today. Can't help but wonder what William Marshall would have made of all of this. He'd probably want to be down there having a go. Log on now to bbc.co.uk forward slash timewatch to talk with me online about the world of the greatest night.